Chain, chain, chain. Chain, chain, chain. Chain, chain, chain. Chain of gold. Five long years. Thought I was your man. But I found out. Welcome to Book, it's the Warmed and Bound Sessions. I'm Olivia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Warmed and Bound is an anthology published by Velvet Press consisting of just under 40 short stories, all by authors who are members of or involved in the Velvet, an online community of authors and fans of the trio Will Christopher Baird, Craig Clevenger, and Stephen Graham Jones. Warmed and Bound was released July 22nd. Craig Clevenger is the author of The Contortionist Handbook and Dermaphoria. He is currently at work on his third novel and was kind enough to take some time out of his day to join us here on Booked. Craig, thanks a lot for coming on. I'm really glad we could have you. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Craig, we've interviewed uh, 16 authors for Warmed and Bound so far, and we've gotten each one of their perspectives on the Velvet, You know how they got there, why they stuck around. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the Velvet, what the inspiration for it was, and how it came to be focused on you and Bear and Jones? Okay, I'll see if I can make this a quick answer. Um, uh, Chris Bear had just had his first two novels reprinted by McAdam Cage, and uh, the handbook had been out for some time, and he and I were both getting our, our websites up. I, I had a little starter blogger site a while back, and uh, Chris didn't have anything, as you, as you might gather. He's not a super big internet guy. So uh, we knew that having a, a forum for the readers to discuss was, was important. You know, We took a lot of cues from the cult, obviously. And uh, it just didn't make any sense for the two of us to have separate websites, given that we had the same publisher and so much overlap in our readership. It didn't make sense for the two of us to have separate discussion forums, so we joined them. And how Chris lassoed Stephen in, I don't know. Um, maybe Stephen answered that for you in today's podcast. I haven't heard it. But it really started out as, as a way of, of having one message board for the two or three of us rather than dividing our audience up into, into three different boards and, and diffusing the, the readership that way. So that's how it started, um, and it's since become self-aware and ambulatory, and, and has moved on with without us apparently. <laughs> we heard that there's kind of an interesting origin for um, your story that's in Warmed and Bound called Active Contrition. Uh, do you is it something you can share with us? Yeah, it, it was inevitable. This was going to come up. Um, I've written elsewhere. I wrote uh, four, maybe five travel diaries while I was down in Bolivia, and uh, the very last one I wrote before I came home, I just sort of came to this this realization, part of what I, I think I was struggling with, with, with this third novel. I'm always very nervous when someone close to me reads my work. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty boring, actually. I, 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 I watch movies, I sit around, read and write, and I'll, I'll take the occasional walk. But people who read my work think I'm some kind of outlaw, and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. What's really disconcerting is when, say, I'm dating someone, and uh, she says, my dad's going to read your book. Few things put the fear of God into me like that. So I, I kind of thought that was the strength of the work. I mean, I... I 
this third novel I've been working on, I was too comfortable sharing things. And I'm, I'm proud of what I've done. I think I'm a much better writer than I am with, than I was with my first book. But I think I was getting comfortable. I wanted to write something that would make me uncomfortable. I, I, I wanted to just see where my own threshold was because I don't think anything good comes from the comfort zone. So it was a, a very late night uh, writing binge in Bolivia. I had a wad of coca leaves in my mouth the size of a softball and started writing until I made myself nervous. And, and that pretty much veered into Nabokov territory. So when the Velvet asked me for something, it was all I had. And I knew that to not contribute to this anthology would have been a, a just grievous insult. So I mailed that one to, to Logan and Pela and just prayed that neither one of them, you know, reported me to someone. <laughs> Can you tell us um, just a little bit about the story itself? Uh, there's not there's not a really deep story arc. It's it, there's there's it's very fairly static the narrative, but it's the the narrator is a a very very religious person to the point of beyond being sexually repressed, he just cannot handle his own sexuality at all. So Nabokov territory maybe was was a bit of an exaggeration. It's not that you know he's he's a Pederast, it's he, he doesn't know what he is. So even though he actually he, he commits no crime in the, in the story, spoiler alert, he's always on the verge of doing something, but even he doesn't know what that is. Uh, I can be more vague if you'd like. No, 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 that's perfectly <laughs> that's fine. That's good. It's tough with a short story to um, yeah. just talk a little bit about it. So um, I, I actually in reading Steve Erickson's uh, introdu- or not introduction, the forward to the the anthology, I really liked that he said, um, I'm going to see if I can find it really quick. Uh, he said that your narrator utters the anthology's most dangerous sentence. I've been good my whole life. And then the more um, I read that forward a couple times recently and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, he's really right about that. Um, that's, that's kind of a cool little insight he had. Yeah, that that had me that had me dancing on air. Steve Erickson is a writer I've I've to say the very least looked up to for most of my pretty much all my adult life after college. I have books of his, you know, he signed to me 20 plus years ago. Uh, you want you want a list of things, you know, I I'd take from a burning building. I've got signed, you know, uh Rubicon Beach days between stations, tours of the Black Clock, all when they came out or uh, before they. I had tours before it came out. Um, yeah, I used to go stalk him. So that was that's a real honor to have that coming from him. I, I consider him the invisible giant. You know, the the the. I think he's honestly the greatest living American writer that we have, and he's got the least amount of recognition. So that was that was a real. I was dancing on air for a couple. Still, I am actually after that intro. <laughs> Um, over these past interviews, um, we've had occasion to talk to several authors who participate in some of the numerous writing intensives that uh, that you've taught, and uh, they've across the board kind of credited you with helping them hone their craft. What do those writing intensives? What do you personally get out of teaching other younger aspiring authors or up and coming authors a, a little more about the writing craft? What I get out of it is is a fire under my ass. Uh, one thing, as you may have gathered, I'm not the most prolific writer. It's it's uh, kind of daunting following Stephen Graham Jones, who probably just finished a novel as we uh, started talking. 
it, it always amazes me how ferociously every one of my students just dives headlong into the work and the assignments. Um, every one of them is more prolific than I am. I, I can say that with, with fair confidence. So for me to, to, to put an assignment out and, uh, or a lecture or whatnot and have people attack it so fiercely and so quickly really lights a fire under me. Not that it's led to more productivity, but the fire is there, trust me. <laughs> um, talking a little bit about your writing, and this is probably something that's been covered, I'm sure, on the Velvet, but uh, we, we have listeners and stuff who might not go there or know too much about it. Um, so I've read Contortionist Handbook and Dermaphoria several times, and um, one of the things I picked up on, and I'm, I'm sure you've gotten this question before, is that it seems like there may be a cameo appearance of uh, John Vincent in Dermaphoria. Is that true or not, or is it something that you leave up to the imagination of the reader? Can I? Can I? Can uh, I? Was, I'd like to say I can neither confirm nor deny, just to be funny. But uh, no, he's. He, I have a strange relationship with the handbook, but but regardless of how I feel about it, it's it's why you and I are talking. The three of us are talking. So it's kind of a it's kind of my nod. But I also the the, the more I read of, of certain writers, I I like this idea of sort of an enclosed universe where. You know, Chris Baer does this a lot uh, in his short fiction. Um, the the idea of having the book sort of coexist in this sort of authorial universe. So, so yeah, having John Vincent pop up is 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 just a fun way to weave those things together. And and his appearance in Dermaphoria is appropriate. Um, and he will likewise have one uh, in in this third third book I'm working on. You know, the it opens up with my you know main character going through a name change and that's really pretty much the extent of that but he just mentions briefly a red-headed man he meets near the courthouse you know and if you know the handbook you know that's john vincent i personally am a big fan of i think it's a uh, regardless of how uh and i guess not regardless because it's kind of not very nice but the, regardless of how the author feels about it i think it's a nice treat for a dedicated fan who's read multiple things that someone's written to, to have that kind of familiarity and stuff like that. So I always get geeked out on uh, those types of little, little minor appearances and stuff like that. I'm, I'm a sucker for all that stuff. Any, any sort of, uh, we call them Easter eggs now, you know, and I was growing up there, you know, it was sort of like a crackerjack prize when you found some sort of hidden code or cipher or, or symbol buried somewhere that really didn't affect the story. It didn't change the meaning of anything. It just added a layer of, of discovery that just made it more engaging. So I, I try to do more and more of that as I move on. Mm -hmm. And I think that mystery has a lot to do with it. Like, um, I guess if, if it was an overt reference that's fine but i think that the mystery of it like having just enough um of a subtle hint that it might be this person is for me even just kind of tastier in a way and and you have to sort of be in the know for for you to to pick up on that clue yep. you know and it, yep. and it just again it adds to a feeling of discovery when it's something that you found on your own you know and it's you're privy to so I, my point kind of trailed off there. Go ahead. Back to <laughs> <That's> you. <laughs> well, thanks for validating my very geeky point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trust me, dude. I, I can go for hours on geek stuff. That's it. Kind of uh, in keeping with uh, with talking about the Contortionist Handbook and Dermaphoria, um, both of the rights to the movies had been purchased. Is there? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, or is there any new news? 
the b- both of them have recently been re-optioned. They're, both companies have been buying more time. Beyond that, I, I go back and forth as far as what I think about you know what's going to happen. Part of me is is you know I know that there's nothing I can do. Um, it's completely out of my hands. I should take the money and take care of business and focus on what I'm writing and, and look forward. And there are parts of me that that sometimes it's like I'm 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 just looking at the Hollywood meat thresher coming right at me, you know, uh, grain thresher, whatever whatever cuts up meat or grain, it's coming at me. Uh, or my work, and I and I get really frustrated, and I'll have the occasional rant or tantrum, and then I'll, I'll go back to my Zen mentality of just letting it pass and focusing on the work. Not to so so as not to dance around the subject. People keep hammering me about Channing Tatum, and I'll be really honest: I have no problem with Channing Tatum at all. I don't know him enough to have a, have an opinion about him. All I I do know that that historically we have plenty of actors who have overcome the the low expectations set by their bone structure, shall we say, um, who have gone on to become taken very seriously. Um, is that grammatically correct? Gone on to become taken very seriously. Sounds I'm not, that I, yeah. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp come to mind, you know, and Angelina Jolie, you know, whatever you may think of them off screen, the fact is they hold their own on camera. So my, my hunch is that Channing Tatum is, is, getting to do the kind of stuff that his agent and manager all but forbade him to do early in his career, not, you know, until he was proven bankable. So I'm not worried about him. It's, I, I have misgivings about the script, and, and the studio asked my opinion. I gave them my opinion. I have yet to ever hear from them again, as I pretty much expected. So uh, my fingers are crossed. I think uh, Rob and I were talking about this earlier when we were kind of going over our questions. And, you know, as geeked as I get about hearing a favorite book turned into a movie, there's always kind of that inevitable that, you know, you feel it's going to be a letdown because so many movies don't hold up. I'm just glad when the authors get paid, you know, a little extra something for it getting turned into a movie. That's really where my uh, my thankfulness for that comes in. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm I tend to agree with you on that. I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that payday. I feel like we're kind of jumping all over, and I apologize for that. But um, damn you! I know. <laughs> in Dermaphoria and Contortionist Handbook, your characters give some very, very convincing details about their professions. Um, a chemist in Dermaphoria and the document forger kind of thing in Contortionist. Um, what's your process for doing research? It seems like you have some really, really well detailed stuff. So, do you think it's something that's really important for a story too? The kind of deep research. I think so. It depends on what you're doing. I mean, if, if you're if you're writing a story that involves details about uh, something you're not familiar with, if if your main character is a private detective and a plumber, you should probably do some homework on on both and not make it up as you go. Uh, to that end, I've done. I did far less research. No, excuse me. I did is pretty much the same amount of research for the both of those first two novels, I included less of it in Dermaphoria than I did in the handbook. Uh, two reasons. One, I just, I really want to lean more on storytelling than, than uh, uh, factoids and, and trivia to engage a reader. Uh, secondly, the handbook, the voice of the handbook necessitated more research being in the story. Uh, John Vincent being sort of an OCD cokehead, 
Uh, he's going to tell you about everything he does. If you've ever met someone like this, uh, and I've met a few, um, you know, like the greatest car detailer in the world I've ever known was was this kind of meticulous, just almost psychotic in, in his attention to detail. Unfortunately, he would also tell you everything he did to trick your car out. It was You had to listen to him. And so John Benson is one of these guys with the lack of social skills that just sort of wants to hook the reader and explain everything he did. So yeah, part of it was necessitated by just John Vincent's narrative voice. Um, so I, I did a lot of research for both. And yes, I think it's important to do research if you are going to be out of your depth. At the same time, most of what I did in the handbook, most of it, I'd say at least half of the facts he throws out in there, I made up. But I made them up after doing a lot of research and really understanding the uh, the discipline very, very well. And then audiobooks, Blackstone Audio uh, it released both books as, I think, um, regular audiobooks, but recently also Dermaphoria as that um, I, iOS accessory app. Um, and then really, I don't even have a question here. I just want to say... Uh, I, I was listening to that a little bit. I got the app for it, and I was listening to it a little bit on a drive from Vermont to D.C. recently. And I was like, man, they found the perfect voice for this. And only afterwards did I realize it was actually your voice. So um, <laughs> did you? That's, do you feel like you have a good voice for, for uh, well, before I, it? I, I, I don't. I've, I've, I've never liked my voice. I've always thought I sounded like Wallace Shawn channeling Bob Goldthwaite. You know, it's, <laughs> it's something I've never been comfortable with. Um, I don't know. You guys are listening to me. How, what do you think? I, I do. I sound. I don't think I sound now like I, I, I sounded on that uh, uh, Dermaphoria uh, recording. Um, uh, I, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> if there's if there's one thing I found from especially this series of interviews, and this is something I've known for a long time, and I'm sure Rob knows, nobody likes the sound of their own voice. Right, right. Even if some people come across that way because of how much they talk, they still don't like how it actually sounds. Yeah, with the uh, with the uh, dermaphoria recording, I was listening. You know, after the first day, I was listening to the, uh, some of the bits of it, and I asked the Andrew, the engineer, what he was, what effects he was using, and he said he wasn't <laughs> using any. And I said, "That's not me." And he goes, "He just explained about the, the the condenser mic and how it's picking up all the everything coming out of all the mid tones in my chest and everything." And I just wanted a condenser mic now welded to my chest, so I could <laughs> sound like that all. You know, what's the problem, officer? No one's going to fuck with you if you sound like that all the time. That's that's not, you know, again, normally it's Wallace Shawn channeling Bob Goldthwait. Um, I've gotten used to it. I've gotten more comfortable with the sound of it just because I have to. But it, it uh, when I read, if I do a reading in, in public, I always take time to take a few deep breaths, do a shot of whiskey, and listen to some Johnny Cash while I go over my notes. That seems to get me in the right headspace. <laughs> But I'm still waking up now, so I'm kind of scattered and tightly wound. That's cool. I thought it was very fitting. Um, I like it. Thanks. Can you tell us how you got started in writing? No, no I, I have no idea. It's I've been doing it since I was uh, very, very young and antisocial. I would stay in at recess in in grade school and write stories on on paper. Don't yeah, I don't know where the impulse came from, but I've always had it. So, Craig, you touched on this a little bit earlier, um, and at least one of the other authors that we talked to during these interviews mentioned this, um, that they'd like to see you do more short fiction. Uh, how do you feel about writing short fiction? You said you talked briefly about it, but is there more of a thought there? 
I haven't written much short fiction since college. College, you know, creative writing, you do a lot of short fiction. At least as an undergrad, there's not time to do novels. Uh, so fiction was pretty much the staple of, of my creative writing education. And since I stopped, you know, I did a lot of short fiction throughout my, my 20s and, and such. But since I started writing again about 12, 15 years ago, after stopping, I pretty much done the novels. I, 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 I always said that, uh, you know, a master clocksmith is not a good watchmaker. You know, they're, they're two different disciplines. They're two different genres. So... I don't think one is just simply a shorter version of the other. Uh, that said, I'm trying to do more short fiction just in an effort to write more. Um, it, if you've ever played a game of Scrabble with me, you'll know why it takes me so long to write. I just, it, I, I think I overthink things to my own detriment. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're currently working on? Uh, well, I, there's this third novel that uh, you know, I'm starting to call Godspeed Junior. Um, <laughs> So I'm working on that, uh, going to ditch the title, Saint Heretic, so I, I, I think I know I'm going to call it, but I'm not certain. But in the meantime, I'm taking a breather. Um, I've got uh, people waiting on it, I know, but I, I need to reboot my brain. So I just finished a short piece, and I've started another one. Uh, I sent a short piece to Steve Eric, or not Steve Erickson, Stephen Jones the other day about a called Chicken Wire about a... a washed up, almost famous, sort of has been rock star living out in the middle of nowhere driving a taxi. So it's it's not noir. It's not my usual fare at all. Uh, it's actually kind of lighthearted and sweet to a degree. People might be kind of surprised. And I'm working on a, a short piece right now called Drone about a uh, the subject of the, the – uh, the drones, the military uh, mm. aircraft, the uh, uh, robotic aircraft, there, there have been an alarming number of these things that have malfunctioned and just kind of gone off on their own. Uh, we don't hear a lot about this, as you might imagine, <laughs> uh, but there it happens. So it's another desert story. I came back from the desert, my mind kind of on fire. So it's another story set in the desert. Uh, I'm working on that, and then I'll get back to uh, what used to be titled Saint Heretic. Can you tell us what some of your early writing influences were? Who were you reading early on that kind of helped define what you wanted to do? Mm. Let's see. The, the the first person to really just knock me out of orbit in terms of of the sort of stasis I was in was Italo Calvino, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly, but I read If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, and it, it, uh, it completely upended my, my ideas of what fiction could do. Uh, stylistically, the, the pulps, obviously, uh, but more than that, I think uh, early college reading T.C. Boyle and later on, of course, Seth Morgan to getting an idea of what's possible with language that that you can make the 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 words as engaging as the storyline. So, how do I say this? People wonder why I read books more than once. You know, and my, and my response, wholly unsarcastically, is you know, why do you watch a movie more than once or listen to a song more than once? Just because you know what's going to happen doesn't mean that the 
the process itself can be engaging and and looking at the real wordsmiths the people that could do really amazing things with with language are the reasons i reread books so i i get influence for different writers for different reasons it's it's not necessarily about uh always the writing style sometimes it's the tone uh or or that writer's work ethic or it's their subject i might not like the 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 style at all but the subject and the places they're going i i I, i'm really drawn to so it's the older i get and the more i write and the more i read the less one single influence looms above the rest uh Chris Bear was a big influence before I met him. Uh, he, that came out wrong. He's still an influence. <laughs> you know yeah, and then I met it. the guy. Yeah, uh. don't you know? Don't edit that. Play it. Any, anything I can needle him with to get him to stick his head above the gopher hole <laughs> and say something to the world is is okay. So uh, uh, he still is. Uh, but uh, you, you know just the style alone but more than that reading a lot of his short fiction and seeing this uh really profound degree of empathy he has uh and that's hard to explain unless he read a lot of his short stuff which most people haven't but uh sometimes i wonder how the guy can remember basic day-to-day things you know where he parked his car and such when i read his short fiction there there's a degree of empathy going on that must make it hard to function i think you know <laughs> it's really profound uh, i mentioned seth morgan and idolo calvino uh john o'brien who wrote leaving las vegas and a few other novels but is my favorite of his are leaving las vegas and, and stripper lessons they're they're very oh i i i I will trail off here. I, I, I can't describe them. He is, he is a remarkable writer, and uh, the loss is ours, uh, his suicide. I spent the bulk of my career trying to equal um, two things, two brief passages. One was the electrotherapy scene on Chief Bromden from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, that hallucinatory passage and chapter 19 of Tours of the Black Clock, I think chapter 19 is maybe a page and a half or two pages. And I've spent my career trying to equal uh, the marvel of, the, of those two brief passages from those books. Uh, you know, Kobo Abay, Doris Lessing, Briefing for a Descent into Hell. Uh, uh, can't describe that when you got to read it to know how it affected me. I've uh, been reading a lot of the Southern Gothic folks lately, William Gay especially. I, I like Cormac McCarthy. I love William Gay. William Gay is wholly underrated and wholly brilliant. Um, just there, there's a sort of, he's very restrained yet very lyrical at the same time. Uh, Mike Hogan, his first novel certainly and his others absolutely, but his, his first novel, uh, Man Out of Time, just knocked me backward. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll keep going if I don't stop there. <laughs> All right. Uh, of your fellow contributors in Warmed and Bound, and yes, this is this is my loaded question that I get to ask oh. every episode. But but I am going to say this: I, I did restrict. I, I changed it to a few. Can you give us a few of the uh, authors that you expect that we're going to see some big things from? I'm still going to take the fifth on that one because no matter what, you know, I, I think the Stephen Graham Jones guy is, is going to go places. I think he's, he's an up and coming voice we should pay more attention to. Ha, how's that? Ha. Oh, we'll have yeah. to take it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these people are former students of mine and, uh, 
you know, whatever they've said in terms of credit to me, I, you know, I got to step back because at this point there, it, it's, I got nothing to do with it anymore. There, everyone seems to have taken flight, you know, without me just fine. They're all, like I said, extremely prolific. I think Richard Thomas, pretty much every other day, says, <laughs> I got a new short story here. Yeah, I, I'm going to take the fifth, but at the same time, give props to them all. Um, yeah, I, I can't win with that question. Nice try, though. You'll, uh, you'll, you'll love it when you hear Stephen Graham Jones' interview um, when you get a chance to listen to it because – um, and I think this is just like almost more of a personality test question than anything like <laughs> we don't expect you to actually give names. We just want to see how you get around it. And um, <clears throat> you and Jones took almost the exact same path. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, this has come up in some Facebook conversations today. And I, I was going to originally ask you your opinions on zombies. But that also made me think instead, let's change it up. Do you got anything for us on llamas? On llamas. Oh, Yeah. I ate one. I wanted to make sure that Amanda Gowan heard that. I think I mentioned it on her Facebook page, but uh, so so just so she knows, yes, there. I, I didn't see a single llama while I was down in Bolivia, not one. However, my friends took me to a place where they served llama meat, and I figured if I go home not having eaten llama meat, I just don't think I could really look at myself. So yes, ate a big pile of shredded llama meat, Amanda, for you. <laughs> she's gonna love that it's quite tasty i should mention and llama meat is called charque in quechua indian and that's one of the very few quechua words we have in the english language that's where the word jerky comes from dried meat all right so she's gonna thought love this. yeah i thought i'd throw that out there a little, <laughs> little libyan trivia for you <laughs> um is there anything that you're really looking forward to reading that's coming up uh soon Oh, good Lord. Um, let's see. Well, right now I'm reading Zazen. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, Vanessa Veselka, if I'm not butchering her last name. Um, that one I'm really enjoying. Um, off the top of my head right now, I am still wading through uh, Infinite Jest. I know you guys are, have, have strong feelings <laughs> about David Foster Wallace and uh, Mirakami. So, Excuse me, I'm kind of caught up in what I'm currently reading and, and still need to read. I haven't even looked at the, the book horizon yet. If Steve Erickson's got a, got a new book coming out, I'll stop whatever I'm doing to read that. And Godspeed, of course. Great. Nice. That's very hey. good. <laughs> what, uh, so what are you thinking about David Foster Wallace's writing style since you mentioned him? Um, I think I'm, I'm with most people that I, his essays are far more readily engaging than his fiction. Uh, he's clearly got a formidable intellect. Um, but I have, I don't read a lot of nonfiction and his two books of essays that I read, uh, consider the lobster and I'm drawing a blank on the other one, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I just burned through those. I absolutely loved them. I just, I, I, I wish I could be that that good, and I wish I could get a magazine to pay for me to go on a cruise ship. How do you score <laughs> that sort of gig? Um, his fiction is clearly—I mean, he clearly knows his stuff, and it's really engaging. But it's—it's—it's it's, it's like learning to swim and standing at the foot of an Olympic pool. It's—I'm scared. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm right now like sitting on the edge with the water up to my knees. Right now, I'm, I'm going to jump in soon. That actually, and I don't know why this reminds me of, it's kind of an odd parallel to make, but I was I was looking through 
your website and your your dispatches and stuff and you were talking about William Burroughs a bit and I feel that way about him. I'm a big fan of of his stuff, but um, things like Naked Lunch, I just can't wrap my head around. But some of the other stuff, like letters between him and other beats and stuff like that, I think are some of the <clears throat> best writing I've, I've read in a long time. So uh, I don't know. Just uh, I guess it's just an association I made because I was reading it recently. But uh, I kind of feel the same way about Burroughs. Like that, there's this giant leap that I just I don't know if my mind can take at this point. Yeah, I've, I've always struggled with reading Burroughs, and I, and I always make that very clear so that, I, you know, I, whenever I reference him in, 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 a, in, a, in an essay that I'm not name-dropping as though I'm a, I'm an, a you know, dilettante scholar, because I'll be honest, I've, I've read very little. Uh, I could listen to the man read for days. I think he is, he's got one of the best reading voices ever. Uh, it's like the Joker's grandfather, you know, uh, that reading voice he's got. And I do remember being very young, and I was 11 or 12 when Lauren Hutton introduced him on Saturday Night Live, and I was just mesmerized. Uh, I'd love to be able to read like that. I want to be that scary old man if I'm his age. That's what I want to do. (laughs) Yeah, and he's gloriously monotonous, like um, the way he's just got that even kind of uh, the tone that he does. Yeah, I agree with you. He has a great voice for reading. It's it's like he's reading a bedtime story to a child. Only it's doctor. You know that that's the cadence. It's it is monotonous, but it's kind of cheerily monotonous. Like he's mm-hmm. trying to lull a baby to sleep while Doctor Benway cuts somebody open with a <laughs> tuna can lid or something. Wow. So, Craig, are there any more uh, writing intensives or classes coming up for you? Uh, there will be. I just don't know when. Uh, Mark Vanderpool over at the cult uh, taps me on the shoulder pretty regularly once every couple of months, and I always beg off uh, just because I, I don't know where I'm going to be. Li- I'm, I've been couch hopping for a while. So I, I, it's hard to commit to anything when uh, I don't know where I'm going to be next. So, um, yes, but I don't know when. I, I feel a real indebtedness to the cult. Um, uh, to to Mark and, and Dennis and Mirica in particular, so so I I, I want to continue to you know support them by you know contributing to these intensives, but uh, I just don't know when I'll be able to do it next. Great. Hey, um, before we start wrapping up the interview, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that maybe we haven't mentioned yet? What have I got? Let's see. Well, I want to. One thing I. I, I You've been asking people, you know, who else, you know, you you should, you know, review or interview or whatnot. And I want to give big, big pimpage to uh, my buddy Rob Roberge, who uh, I met years ago, and um, uh, I read his first novel, and I've told him this, so I, this will sound cruel, but I've said this to him. It's like I, I remember enjoying it, but I don't remember it specifically. And I was reading his other stuff recently and just my jaw hit the floor. My first question was, you know, Lord, who broke your heart, buddy? Uh, <laughs> even though I, I, you know, he's been happily married for a very long time, but, but he, there, there's just such a, there's just such a rawness to what he's doing. So yeah, I gotta, I gotta give him major props. And you guys have been talking about the, 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 the women in noir and, and the, and the, and the boys club question and such. So I should, you know, make sure I mention Sarah Grant and Megan Abbott. Uh, you know, um, yeah, I, uh, I actually did, you know, the, I don't have an answer for the, for the question about, uh, the, the, the lack of women in the anthology. Uh, 
I, I wrote something on the Velvet the other day about the issue, the, the, the same issue, and ultimately it comes down to me not knowing. I, I don't have an answer for that question, but I think it's really important we keep asking, uh, and I'm glad you guys are putting it out there. It needs to be, it needs to be brought up. Um, because let, let, let's be honest, if you want to talk about noir and, and, the, and the dark, ugly injustice of the godless universe, I, I think straight white men are probably the least qualified <laughs> to write about it. Let, let's be real here. Uh, we spent the least amount of time on the business end of the injustice of life. So it's our loss uh, not having more, more you know, women in the mix, definitely. Uh, but thanks for asking. I'm, I, I'm glad you guys are putting the question out there. It needs to be. It needs to be put out there. Um, and I don't think we're going to come up with an immediate answer. But that the subject needs to be raised. Uh, good lord! You know, I've got a bunch of notes here, but if I start blathering them out, it'll just come out. Uh, it'll come out all. I don't know. It'll just sound weird and non sequitur. I was prepared for a lot more hardball questions, so I'm. Uh, <sighs> we like this, to have this, fun. You know, keep it loose. Okay, and if you need to. Call me back to have another like silent pause to to cut in. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I anyway. um I joke now that I can actually see an um in waveform. I can tell what an um looks like in waveform. So, and I, actually, French ums look different than uh, American. Uh, like Axel Tyree with his French accent, his ums are way different than uh, people with non-French accents. That's that's fascinating. Yeah. That makes. I'd like to see one of those, and I'm not joking. Actually, there there's a book called Um. <laughs> And it's it, the subtitle is like verbal slips and what they mean or something like that. And this guy wrote an entire book on pauses and self corrections and slip ups and 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 what parts of our brain are doing what when we speak. It's fascinating. Uh, trust me, it, 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 if you're into this sort of thing, it's fascinating. If you're not, it's going to be dull as dirt. <laughs> But I can, uh, I can tell you, we can now contribute a chapter because we've developed. Um, there, there are actually many, many different types of ums. There's the, yes. There's the andum, which is one word which you can't cut. You cannot cut an um out of an andum. So yeah. in yes. some of the interviews, like we try as much as we can when someone's kind of like you know formulating their answer and there's an um or two in there, you know. And I added a couple of the episodes and we cut them out. Unfortunately, we run into people who use the andum, and if you need the and to connect those two thoughts together, you can't yeah. take out the whole andum, so you have to leave the um of the andum in there. Yeah, wow. Or you get kind of an audio pop. Yeah, we've learned a lot more about about ums than we ever thought we'd need to know <laughs> doing this. It's so. it's quite fascinating. It's funny because I, I the character. In, in this third novel is is uh, I have I have him sort of be being nervous and stammering and trying to trying to I've been really focusing on dialogue with each book I get a little better I think and having read something Stephen Graham Jones wrote about smacking down ellipses ellipses are cheating <laughs> I've started to write dialogue trying to convey the, these awkward pauses and, and andums and whatnot without using ellipses and without uh, putting, like, stammers with little hyphens in there. <laughs> it's really tricky, but it actually does work. When someone says, I, comma, like, okay, I, you know, spelling out the way someone speaks when they're correcting themselves in real time is, is awkward at first, but then it starts to make a perverse sort of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a thought. I'm sorry if I'm stepping on you. Uh, as far as like trying to to get authentic uh, 
uh, speech in, in like a writing thing. I've had to transcribe interviews and stuff in, in my past and yeah. And, and actually trying to write out the, the way that people say things is really fascinating. And obviously, you know, for the sake of it going in a newspaper or something, I would edit down all the ums and the, and, the, and that kind of stuff. But in the beginning, I, I was just doing things verbatim and it was so crazy to see how that actually would be formed on a page as opposed to just hearing it. So that's an interesting idea is maybe getting in some transcriptions of just like actual conversations and stuff. And this writer talks a lot about that, about, about the presidential transcripts and, and, and how the official white house press, you know, room does this sort of stuff and other newspapers. It, it, it's a very intensive part of reporting. And of course it dovetails into, uh, uh, issues of class and race when you see reporters spelling things phonetically for one person and not for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's another thing I started doing was in Dermophoria, I used a lot of phonetic spelling uh, in order to make the speech more natural. But when you stop doing gotta and say got to or going to instead of gonna, when when you force yourself to spell words out, it means you pick the words more deliberately and oddly enough it makes the stammering replicating that stammering and and self-correct self-correction the uncertainty it makes it a lot easier to do in a strange way (laughs) uh chris bear is i love the guy to death but talking to him he'll talk like this very slow and if you've seen him he pictures of him he looks like that in person he's got a heart the size of a basketball he's a sweet guy but he's very menacing looking you know he's got a very hard stone face and so i just remember when his daughter was born just watching watching him hold her going give daddy a smile daddy loves you and it's like dude you're scaring her put her down you know so did you happen to listen to uh (laughs) caleb ross's uh Warmed and bound interview we did. I did. I listened to them all. Refresh my oh, okay. memory, though. <laughs> he was talking about his how he first met Stephen Graham Jones and how he first met you. And I think both, oh, God, yeah, both of them involved lying to you guys. And I thought it was. I didn't just, know this. I didn't know this. <laughs> it's just that's so that's so cute. It was it was hilarious. I was it was such a charming little story. Yeah. Well, actually, here's here's one. Um, I had finished writing. I mean, I was a huge fan of of Kiss Me Judas, uh, of course, and and uh, I'd finished writing the handbook. And this was back, I don't know, God, more than ten years ago, give or take. And you know, you do a web search for Chris Bear and or, you know Will Christopher uh, as he was or is, and um, yeah, you would I wouldn't find much other than that he's from Memphis and lived in Northern California and. Colorado and and whatnot, but not much else. So, I was living in Santa Barbara at the time. I, I there was this coffee shop down the street from my apartment where I, one of the few human beings I saw on a fairly regular basis was the guy at this coffee shop. I pretty much locked myself up for a couple of years to work on the handbook, and it had come out. I got the job at the bookstore, so I was on my way to work one day, and I stopped by the coffee shop. And uh, the owner knew I I had this book come out, and he goes, I, you know, he he'd read it. He said, "So are you a fan of Will Christopher Bear?" Then I said, "Yeah, absolutely, I love him." And he goes, "That's funny. I thought you'd might like him. He used to work here." And <laughs> and I went, "Excuse me." Uh, and it turns out Chris Chris and I had been living about eight blocks from each other, 
Wow. And so I, I passed a copy of the handbook to, to, to the owner to pass on to Chris. Chris and I end up corresponding uh, via email over the course of a few weeks. Turns out he's working at the local independent paper down in Santa Barbara. Um, the independent, uh, the focus group came up with that one. <laughs> and uh, so he, he's working at the paper. We finally agree to meet. He, he, he said he's going to interview me for the, for the paper, but we should just hang out anyway. And uh, we met at a bar a little little Mexican restaurant bar place, and it was just it was just weird. Um, bull sat down, boots, jeans, black shirts, sleeves rolled up, tattoos, drove the same car, and our birthdays were a week apart. It was a little weird and kind of amusing. Um, so yeah, that's that story. And then and then he moved to Memphis. Okay, and Vincent Carella, Vincent Carella, I met when I was bartending. He came in and was talking to a buddy. And I had a standing rule at uh, whenever I bartend that, that you know my my coworkers do not tell anyone I, I I've written books because I, I just don't want to have people thrusting you know you know uh, fan fiction at me because it's happened. Mm -hmm. So, but I heard Vincent uh, talking to a buddy of his about his book, and I could glean from the conversation because I'm a bartender and we hear everything that he was legit. So I, I, I started talking to him about it and that's how I met Vincent Carell and how he came into the mix. It's just a lot of random stuff. Oh, I was staying down in Bolivia with, with Wendy Dale and, and her boyfriend. Wendy was the person who actually first sent my book to the cult and got it into Dennis Widmeyer and Chuck Palahniuk's hands. So yeah, it's just it's just one great big you know North Beach in the '60s. No, it's not. It's, oh, your man and your man and uh, Malaz uh, Corbier. Yeah, something about uh, all right being two words. Um, oh yeah, let's hear this. Um, you know, I gotta back him up. Uh, you know, and I'll go on record. Chris Bear and Cormac McCarthy are wrong. All right is two words, and it's one of the first things. Whenever I teach, that's one of the first bits of feedback I throw out there, like common errors. All right is two words. Being in you know, the dictionary, we'll say that the one-word spelling is acceptable, but most dictionaries are, are descriptivist, and, and you know, that, that doesn't mean it's correct just because it's in the dictionary. Wow, you just broke Axel Tyre's heart. I love Axel. <laughs> just so, well, you know, I mean, the fact that he writes in, in his second language is kind of intimidating, really, like that. Um, oh, the Axel Tayari story. Uh, I wanted to say this on, the, on, the, on his Facebook you know, comment or something, but there's no way to make the story short enough to make it not sound derogatory. But he was in one of my classes, and in a conference call, one of the, one of the periodic conference calls we had every two or three weeks, but being, I think, nine hours ahead... His girlfriend was asleep, so he was in on the call. He, I guess he had a small apartment at the time, or still does, I don't know, but he locked himself in the bathroom for the conference call. So, it was not to, so he was in Paris at 2 or 3 in the morning in his bathroom for two hours on the phone with us so as not to wake up his girlfriend. That's pretty hardcore. Wow, yeah. I've always, yeah. I didn't say that on his Facebook because there's no way to make that story short. And if I said, you know, hey, you're, aren't you the guy that spent two hours in the bathroom on a conference <laughs> call? Would sound wrong. He did, but that's why. He wasn't using it. He was just using the phone. And that, yeah. Thanks, that's, Axel. That's dedication, yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Craig, if there's one bit of advice you can offer to aspiring writers, what would it be? Um, easy. Uh, write every write every story like it's your last. That's I have a list of of writing advice things I've I've, I've put up before, but first and foremost, write every story like you're on your deathbed. Don't think about you know your career, your portfolio, or or you know don't save things, the good stuff for a later thing. Uh, just make it do or die. You know, make everyone matter. Like it's like it's your last final deathbed shot at getting a story down. Just put everything into every single one. That's my advice. Okay, so question for you guys. No offense, Rob. I mean, you got a lovely name and everything, but Livius, like, <laughs> are you tired of answering that one? Um, no, you know what? It actually hasn't come up really in years until we started doing these interviews, and I've gotten oh. some comments. Yes, it's my real name. That's okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's it's like a it's like a, a, a super super villain name. Like like your alter ego is a super villain, you know, or there something. Is, there is a short-ish version of this. Um, my mom had a half brother who died when she was uh, ten years old, and Livius was his name, so that's where it comes from in my family. Historically, it's. Um, Gaius Metallius Livius killed um, Augustus Caesar, and that's where historically it comes from. So apparently, Grandpa was a Roman uh, Roman fan. Wow, just sort of makes being named, you know, Mike or something, kind of a drag after that. Huh? You know what? You never have to. Well, you never probably never have to repeat Craig, but the Mikes of the world never have to say Mike six or seven times before somebody like latches yeah. on to what it is. So I answer to Lewis and Lascivious and just about everything else. <laughs> If it starts with an L and an S, I assume people are talking to me. So lascivious. Okay, there's a name. Yeah, that's pretty accurate too. He's kind of yeah. a lascivious. <laughs> if you knew him personally, he's kind of a lascivious dude. He's getting a lot of fan love. A lot of the um, authors that we're talking to just love his name, Livius. Yeah, it's a uh, uh, Chris Bear is very good with coming up, coming up with names. You know, Ryder Fell and Phineas Poe and and whatnot. Uh, uh, I, I've tried to work on it, but I'll just never be that. I use random name generators. I, they they just don't work as well. One of my prize reference volumes is in is a Manhattan White Pages, which is a, a, a prized volume to have because you've got every just oh, yeah. about every ethnicity on the planet crammed together. That and a baby naming book, and you're good to go. I just assume that since you had that whole big section in contortionists about finding. Um, you know, names that are kind of under the radar or whatever that, mm -hmm. you know, that that's kind of actually something that you use when you're naming characters. Actually, that was, that was one of the things I, I completely made up. I have no idea what the criteria <laughs> are for picking a name. If you are faking a name, but uh, yeah, I pulled that one out of thin air. That's a, that's another example of that. So I'm oh, waiting yeah. for someone to get caught based on trying to do something based <laughs> on what they learned you know, I, I want someone to get caught because they screwed up thinking it was all factually accurate and therefore sue me and, and, and get some PR out there because there's no better PR than being sued. Yeah, that's true. I did find a name generator online a while back that actually was based on, um, on the census. 
So okay. apparently the frequency would come up with what the frequency of names were, and you could kind of set a tolerance. I don't remember. It was on my old computer. I had it bookmarked on there. I've switched computers, though, but I'd actually used it for a little something I was working on. So, yeah, it actually just took – and you could, like, set, like, a like a randomness. So, say, 30%, and that wouldn't get you John Smith, but that might get you, like, you know, like Bob Lighthouse or something like right. that. And then you can go into the very rare and probably wind up with something like Livius Nedden at the, you know, 100% threshold <laughs> or whatever. But it was kind yeah. of an interesting way because how common of a name you wanted you could just set this and it would just list off you know 10 or 20 per page you can kind of scroll through and pick out a name you wanted so i thought that was kind of a nifty way to to go about doing it i've got a name generator as well that i that i've used a little bit but not much it's got the same thing you can you can throttle it you know the zero to a hundred common to to weird and then the amount of names it kicks back uh i don't know if it comes from the census or not i can't help but think that something based on the census though is going to be uh, slanted according to successful surveys taken because mm. census takers oh, yeah. get a lot of dogs sicked on them and shoes thrown at them and, and rock salt fired. I, I think a lot of census, so a lot of people might fall off the radar, which tells me there's a certain type of name you have which would indicate you have a higher probability of having a pit bull and a shotgun. <laughs> so, and, you know, and we don't know what those names are, of course. It's a very interesting point you make there. But for the record, I just think that the name generators, I use them, but then I kind of stop it. It just feels like cheating. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, and, and I, I don't have any rational defense for this, but it just feels like I'm cheating if I do that. It's like, it's like the, the, the dial a plot machine or something. It's, if, if I didn't do it, then it's not legit. So That's fair. I can see that. Uh, what other random things? Okay, so you're fucking with Richard Thomas. Good to know. Well, I think you know having two other people tell the story about how scared Richard was in the <laughs> hotel room. I think you've done your job. Yeah, that was just like you know, and I admit that I'm just a little bit uh, cyni- or not cynical, but sadistic that way. But I, that was something I couldn't let up on. I thought it was way too funny. And I'm sorry, that movie was not scary. I walked out of there <laughs> and the Blair Witch Project, going, "What the fuck." Oh, I remember coming out of the Blair Witch Project, just picking up sticks and going, ooh, a stick, to my to my girlfriend, who got very annoyed very quickly. And I came out of Paranormal Activity just 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 annoyed that I will never get that that hour and a half of my life back. Um, <laughs> so you're saying you want, you don't want to see Paranormal Activity three? It's only on three, huh? Yeah. <laughs> no, well, three I'm three not. is coming out in October. I, I'm pretty sure it's a Halloween release. Yeah. But there was a two that I obviously there, there was, was a there was a two that was uh it wasn't quite as good as the first one. Mother of God! Oh, really? So because the first one sucked. <laughs> See, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was overly frightening. I kind of liked what they did with it, but well, it's it, 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 that's my issue. Is it well, it wasn't frightening for me, and it, to be a horror movie, that's kind of a prerequisite: is that you be frightening. My issue, I I I love. I love this kind of storytelling. I, 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 I keep leaning. To, I, I have ideas for things I want to do on this front, but the idea of storytelling with, with artifacts of, of, of objects from the real world. You know, Dracula is a perfect example. You know, Dracula is a collection of newspaper clippings and, and correspondence. Uh, I've got one short piece I'm working on that's, a, that's a, it's basically a transcript of a, of a phone conversation. Uh, it's a telemarketing firm where a guy calls up a, a telemarketer or a guy takes a telemarketer call to uh, 
commit suicide. And so it's a, it's a police transcript of the recording that this guy did. I, I love the idea. The problem with shooting films that way is if you've got, uh, okay, what do you got? Blair Witch, Paranormal Activity. Um, what's the other one? Quarantine that I rather liked. Mm-hmm. Yes. But it had the same, it had the same flaw is that uh, a Cloverfield, perfect example. So if you've got a horror movie with, something um ostensibly horrible going on alien invasion ghost just random bloodshed whatever it is you need the film to keep going the only way to make the story work is because it is with the found footage so you have to have a character who holds the camera the whole time the only person that is going to keep a camera running in the midst of these conditions is going to be an insufferable narcissistic asshole <laughs> and Every one of these, I mean, the woman's husband in Paranormal Activity, I just, I wanted to slap that guy within the first 10 minutes of the film. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure that that wasn't written that way, because he really did come across as an asshole, and I think it was kind of intended to come off that way. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah. I, think, I think they all are, because, like I said, for, for the, for the de- narrative device to work, I don't know about you guys, but if... if I see the Statue of Liberty come rolling down the street after an explosion. I'm dropping the fucking camera, and I'm, I'm going to move, you know. Um, so for someone to hang on and, and do that to make the film work, you have to suspend your belief that somebody could really be that big of an asshole. <laughs> That's fair. And, and, Am I making a – yeah, does that sound yeah. – yeah. And so my problem with these films is that they're great ideas, but the people holding the cameras that are integral to the story are just too annoying to, to put up with. But you have to. So um, – Yeah, and then like logically going beyond that, that asshole needed to have a camera at that exact moment. Right, right. Now that's becoming more common with you know, uh, you know, Facebook and, and, and YouTube and whatnot, but, but still – Anyone who doesn't drop a camera and and just start looking out for themselves and worrying about their fr- like if you're going to rescue your friend, turn off the camera and use both hands to climb. You know, uh, if you don't, it's, it's you just have to be that kind of insufferable personality to make the story work, and that's the hard time I have with those sorts of films. Beyond that, even if the husband had been a perfectly nice guy, Paranormal Activity was just not remotely scary at all. There, I said it. There you go, Livius. I feel better. I just think it's fantastic that we've gotten like five or six authors to talk about such a throwaway movie as Paranormal Activity with like and like really analyze it. And I had never even seen it, so I don't know if it's scary or not. But it's it just it's. I think it's hilarious that so many people have taken it seriously when they talk to us and enough to talk about it and analyze it. Well, I mean, again, the question you asked me, what do, what do I geek out on? Um, it, I kind of froze up because it, it kind of shifts day to day, whatever <laughs> I, I happen to be fixated on. And yeah, when I watch a movie, I will pick it apart. When I, when I, when I read a book, I, I do pick it apart as I read. So yeah, but, and that's the device that makes those films work that finally dawned on me after the third one that sucked. Uh, what I liked about Blair Witch was the whole campaign surrounding it that I, I just thought was really intriguing. The whole internet, uh, you know, the websites and, and the fake you know news articles and such, I, I just thought were brilliant. And that's 
what I liked about House of Leaves, having all the the things that exist outside the story mm-hmm. being referred to in the story, I just think makes a book larger than life. Um, what I wanted to do early on, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay. I was just going to say it's amazing how many people bought all of the Blair Witch stuff. I worked with a, with somebody who... After I'd seen the movie and I'd mentioned it, and she goes, "Yeah, I can't believe they actually, you know, put that on, you know, on the big screen for people to see." And I said, "Well, you know," so I asked her, "Well, what do you mean?" And she goes, "You know, those kids died and whatever." And I said, "You know, that girl was just on David Letterman. Like I'd seen her on the show the night before." And she's like, "She's like, no, no, I heard that that's actual." And I'm thinking, "No, you know, it's stuff like that will never end up." I, I mean, I shouldn't say that. The way that reality TV and stuff is going, something real like that could end up on the big screen at some point. But at that time, that wasn't likely to happen. So, but there are people yeah. who actually bought into it that needed to be convinced afterwards that the marketing campaign was a marketing campaign and not a an actual news, you know, attachment wow. on, on the movie. So. And here's here's what is funny to me: being pigeonholed as uh, pigeonholed isn't isn't right. I mean, because I, I, I knowingly did this, but my first two books are, are are referred to as. I mean, I've always been told how dark they are. They're really dark, and I'll grant you that. But they're not violent. Mm-hmm. Violence in my books is is virtually non-existent, and what little is there is is sort of off screen or it's it, mm-hmm. it's referred to as something that happens outside the narrative but there is no overt explicit you know graphic or gratuitous violence anywhere in my books at all so for me that just sort of you know allows me to press the question okay if what's dark about it then tell me because it seems to me that we're okay with with watching you know uh, this sort of stuff on reality tv cops and whatnot fairly routinely and that's considered primetime viewing. In fact, both both books, the, the the ebook versions, finally turned up in the Apple Store and got rated as twelve plus for occasional tobacco and alcohol use and vague sexual references. Um, so it's clear to me that nobody read my work. And they rated <laughs> it for the Apple Store, but I'm also very careful about whatever keywords or phrases they're looking for in these. They're not catching them. Because I, I, I worked very hard to strip that stuff out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, I had a much better wrap-up for that a minute ago in my brain that's gone now. Oh, damn. What was uh, – Livius, we were talking to someone else and uh, and they were talking about CSI changing what, what was considered violence because they would that was simulate. David, that was David James Keaton. Yeah, and he was talking about how CSI and seeing the, the kind of – the forensic side of of like bodies and wounds and everything desensitized us to actual like desensitized the TV viewership to the point where you could see that actual violence happening. Um, it was kind of like a backdoor into getting more violence on TV almost. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it's funny. I remember watching Cops years and years ago, and I haven't had a TV for God knows how long, so I can never remember. It's usually in a hotel room when I catch this stuff. But I remember seeing cops. There was, I think she was dead. I'm not sure if you can actually show corpses on television or or not. But if she wasn't dead, she was unconscious with a massive head wound. But they showed a woman. She'd been assaulted in her kitchen, lying on the floor, not moving, blood coming out the back of her head, and her clothes had been ripped, and they pixelated her breast. <laughs> so, like... God forbid my child should see a boob, but yeah, let him show a woman bleeding out the back of her head. That's perfectly acceptable, and it—I've never understood that double standard we have. 
Well, and yeah, I mean, you talk about that, and then there's the shows that are, um, you know, not celebrity rehab. What's that other one called? Um, God, I we're. I don't have a TV. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I can't think of what it's called. At any rate, it's it's intervention, and that's yes. exactly what it is. So, I mean, you know, you go from say no to drugs, and and obviously it doesn't glamorize drugs, but I mean, you talk about dark you know stuff on tv it, it's you know it's really gotten to the point where it's not just the violence i mean hopefully that show deters people from you know from getting themselves into those positions but that's some of the darkest shit i think i've ever seen and you know i go the other route like the violence stuff you know i'm probably a little desensitized myself having grown up with you know four thousand channels of tv and hbo and everything else but yeah i mean it's just it, it it gets so much more real every week on the tv if it's hoarders or whatever else that eventually i think it's going to be anything goes at least in some format or another so. yeah i think um i and as far as desensitizing people I'm, I'm not sure where i am on 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 this argument um michael ventura uh is is a, a, a an essayist he writes for the austin chronicle does a does a column called letters at 3 a.m and he used to write it for the la weekly uh, he was one of the founders of the LA Weekly, and uh, he wrote an article in the Weekly years ago. And it was he opens the article by uh, transcribing an entry from a Civil War soldier's diary, and it was a diary entry, diary entry that this soldier was uh, no, excuse me, uh, a cavalry soldier, and it was it was an, an entry about the events of the day where they had just charged upon an Indian camp and more or less slaughtered everyone and and in it, the survivors were fleeing and they you know the, the cavalry had made its point and and straggling behind had been left behind a small child and so he he you know aims his rifle takes a bead fires and misses takes three shots and his buddy grabs the rifle and does the, and three three or four of these soldiers are taking shots at a five-year-old kid before they finally you know hit him and kill him and then from there, then he he shows you the context. Like these are these are soldiers in the cavalry. Ergo, these are are white Christian men, okay, of this age that that were that were raised on the Bible and, and a belief in, in right and wrong and good and bad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're they're doing something that is that is on par with. John, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what comparison to make. I mean, how do you compare five five guys uh, firing on a five year old child from a distance just just to get it done with or see who can kill him first? Um, and these are not you know marauding serial killers. These are these are Christian men in a, in a in a an American army. And he points out that this was this was you know long before Quentin Tarantino and Starsky and Hutch and everything else we can blame on mass media. So. I'm not. I'm not going to defend what I see on 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 things sometimes, but at the same time, I you know. That's a boy. Conversation just took a real downer, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no! I no, I was just going to say that's a very good point. It's a perspective that you know we don't really think about. Um, but I think that you know, we're, as a nation, we've never really been that concerned with perspective anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think intervention. I don't think intervention glorifies drugs, but it does glorify me. This, the, the and that—that's what I see more and more. Reality tele- television is just me being famous for being famous. Uh, so, well, that's why we do this podcast. I love yep. listening to myself talk. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm waiting for the big fat paychecks. So, because I don't yeah. love listening. I'm talking. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. It's nothing podcasting, I gotta tell you. It's nothing but cocaine and hookers. So I was gonna say, yeah, same with same with uh, writing novels. Um random question that I just thought of. Uh is there anything outside of writing or reading that uh you're really geeked out about right now? Oh, I go through I go through different different uh waves of, of geekdom. Um I think after researching the handbook, I taught myself how to count cards, and that went away. Just every now and then, I've got to flex the left side of my brain. <laughs> I've I've been collecting um, antique mug shots for the for for a little while now. That's what I've sort of geeked out on. How's that for an answer? That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's, I've been meaning to scan some and post them, um, but yeah, that's that's where I'm geeking out now. Specifically, like early 20th century. Where do you find antique mugshots? I mean, these, but no, I mean, like, it, is it in stores or is there like a website? I mean, it, it sounds like a very, very cool hobby. I just, I don't think I've ever seen an antique mugshot ever. Um, it's like, it's like anything else. Once you get past stamps and coins uh, and comics and whatnot, you're not going to find, you know, criminals are us or anything like that. You just kind of start digging. There's a there's a, a vintage paper fair coming up. That's where I get most of mine. That's uh, basically it's a, it's an antique uh, fair. That's anything printed aside from stamps and, and and there's some money there, but it's anything other than like stamps and comic books. It's a lot of antique postcards and photographs, and it just takes some rummaging. And, and one thing I've learned is that uh, in the antique world, there's a fetish for everything. So I've yet to really shock anybody with my request. Because most dealers find people that go after some tiny minutia of antiquary. I don't know if that's the word. Met a woman who told me she she had a collector of antique funerary hardware. So a guy who collected coffin handles. <laughs> I, I, I shit you negative. That, that was an actual thing. So, yeah, I rummage antique stores, piles of old photographs and in and, and this particular fair and uh, just look for uh, cat burglars and prostitutes and pickpockets from the 20s. Um, and I got to tell you something. They, they knew how to dress back then. Even, even the most low-life, derelict criminal had a suit and tie on for his mugshot. He probably slept in it, but they had a suit and tie on in there for their mugshot. That is very yeah. cool. <laughs> a level of class you don't find today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just don't make pickpockets like they used to. <laughs> Craig, uh, can you tell people where they can find you online? Well, obviously CraigClevenger.com, but I'll, I'll be honest that my website's in transition. So it's uh and you can look for it, but uh, it's it's not really that complete. I've got a landing page there with links elsewhere. Most most of uh, my activity is on Facebook right now until I get my my uh, website back up. But yeah, CraigClevenger.com, but it's just Craig Clevenger on Facebook. I'm pretty much on every social network place out there, but uh, uh, Facebook is where I do most of my activity right now. Yeah, I, it would be nice if everybody could just get on one somehow kind of with Google Plus coming up, too. It's so hard to keep up with everybody on 14 different social network sites. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, I use a landing page that, that aggregates all of my websites into one place, which I think is really handy. And uh, my – oh, back to the geek question. I have, been, I have been tinkering with every single dial and setting on Google Plus for the last couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm wholly unimpressed. So 
I'll keep tinkering and hopefully my mind will change. But yeah, don't don't bother looking for me on Google Plus right mm-hmm. now. If you if you add if you add me, you will find me and you won't see anything unless I know you personally and I've slept on your couch. Uh, I'm keeping the throttles really tight because uh, I so far I'm not really impressed and my my rants are on my Facebook page. Very cool. Well, uh, I just want to say thanks for. Uh, uh, every time we have an episode go up for these Warren and Bound sessions, you're you're really getting it out there. So I really appreciate you getting the word out about uh, these interviews that we're doing. I, I appreciate you guys giving the anthology so much support. I, I hope I've, I don't know, I'm looking at the time setting on my Skype here, and it's already been an hour. I don't think I've said anything that informative, so I hope I gave you some sound bites for your collection. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've got some great stuff from today craig so um thank you again so much for helping us round out the uh these interviews and we really appreciate your time and look forward to more of your stuff very very soon i look forward to hearing some actual book reviews from you guys again soon (laughs) it'll it'll be fun this means we have to go back to reading books rob So nice, you know. Our, our preparation now is we read twelve pages, you know, the day before an interview, and that's you know that's it. Instead of you know barreling out a, another five hundred page David Foster Wallace book, you know. Yeah. Though um, the thing that I've noticed is um, ever since we started doing this podcast, I feel like I, I think more about books that I'm not able to read because I've got this obligation to the podcast than I think about the books that I have to read that we're going to review. So. I thought I was going to read more, and I feel like I'm missing out more. That's you know that's very much the feeling of of, of when when you work in a bookstore. If you guys have ever done that, working in a bookstore, you you, you become acutely aware of how much you're missing, mm-hmm. and at the same time, you sound at a party like you've read everything because you've read the back <laughs> and dust jacket of every new book that's come out. So. Oh yes, that one. It's a tour de force black comedy for the whole family, and people people think you're the most well read person on earth when in fact you barely have time for your own reading. You know. Well, there you go, Rob. I think we totally need to cut that out of the interview, and that's why we need part time jobs at bookstores to really round up, to, to round out our knowledge here on the show. So we can be dusk jacket posers. Exactly. exactly. Human clips notes. <laughs> so, Craig, thanks again for taking the time to come and join us here on Booked. Thank you guys very, very much for for the time and and the tangents. Okay, and once again, a very big thanks to Craig Clevenger. Really happy we could have him on. You can find out more about him and his writing at craigclevenger.com. And you can read his story, Act of Contrition, in Warmed and Bound, which was released July 22nd. That just about wraps it up for the Warmed and Bound sessions for Booked. I'm Livia Snedden. Here I'm Rob Olson. Check back in another week or two for a book review episode of Booked. Mm-hmm.